Well, for those of you who don't know, I know there's a lot of new faces around here. Uh, my name is Ricky Ragone. I am the music and arts and youth pastor here at the church. And uh, it's my pleasure to be able to preach the word this morning as we continue through our study of the gospel according to Luke, Mission to the World. Uh, so if you have your Bibles in whatever medium or format you prefer, turn to Luke chapter 4. We do have Bibles in the back on that table between the double doors. If you need one, go grab it. If you don't have one, you can keep it. Uh, but Luke chapter 4 is where we will be this morning, turning our attention there, specifically verses 14 through 30, as we heard read earlier from Pastor Chris. Now, I could recap all the way from chapter 1 to bring us up to the context of our passage, but I'll refrain from doing that. Uh, and I'll just bring, us, bring our minds back to chapter 3 of Luke, uh, where we see John the Baptist. As we know, John the Baptist was this, this man who, who prepared the way for Jesus by announcing his coming and, and baptizing people for the re repentance of sin and the forgiveness of sin. And we saw in chapter 3 that Jesus himself gets baptized, even though he has absolutely no need to be baptized for the repentance of sin, for he has no sin. But he is baptized, and it says in chapter 3, verse 21 to 22, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And it's here we see this beautiful picture of the Trinity, the Father speaking to the Son, the Spirit descending on the Son, anointing Him, empowering Him for the ministry before Him. And before we actually see that ministry play out, Luke takes a second and takes a little aside to, to show us Jesus' connection all the way back to Adam. And we had that section of genealogy. Genealogy is our favorite texts in all of Scripture to read and, and chew on and meditate on. Just as Jesus came as a true, historic, living, breathing person when he was born, his lineage traced back to a true, historic Adam who lived and breathed. The difference between the two is Adam's life brought death to mankind through his sin, and Jesus' life and his will bring Jesus will bring life to mankind through his death. Jesus is the true and better Adam, as we saw when we looked at that text and as we sing regularly when we sing the song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. He's the one who has come to crush the serpent's head and to break the curse of sin. Jesus is the hope that the world longs for. I forgot to adjust this. I'm sorry. It's only because my font's small. Sorry. So once Luke establishes the, the truth of who Jesus is and where he comes from and how he connects all the way back to the beginning, he brings us back into the story, back into the narrative he's telling. And he, he tells of Jesus being empowered by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, goes from the Jordan to the wilderness. And he's in the wilderness for 40 days with no food, being tempted by the devil. 
The devil tries to appeal to Jesus' hunger and tempts him to turn stones to bread. But Jesus combats the devil's schemes with the word of God. Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil tries to appeal to his human desire for power. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you just bow down and worship me. Jesus responds to that also with the word of God. You shall worship the Lord your you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. We see the devil lead Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. He tells him, "Throw yourself off." And then he tries to use the word of God to tempt Jesus. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus refutes the abuse of Scripture with Scripture. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And finally, the devil departs from Jesus, which brings us to where we are at this morning in verses 14 to 30. And as we look at this passage, I'm going to see three sections. Jesus returns and people glory. Jesus proclaims the good news and people marvel. Jesus proclaims the good news and people revolt. Uh, It's not the most succinct outline, but they can't all be winners. This is what we got. So hopefully these points help us to remember this text. And let's look at point one, verse 14. So the first important thing we see in this passage is that Jesus returns to Galilee by the power of the Spirit. Luke is very intentional by including the Spirit's work in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus himself embraced and relied on the power of the Spirit. And I love it because it shows that the Jesus' ministry, the Spirit's ministry, they're not separate. There's a unity in the Trinity. Each member of the Trinity is a unique person, but they are together on the same mission. Three persons, one God, one mission. Jesus in his incarnation, though fully God, is also fully man and relies on the empowerment of the Spirit, just as we see the Spirit empowering the apostles in the early church, and every believer is in need of the Spirit today. Jesus, he would have been justified in doing things in his own strength. But in power, he submits himself to the leading of the Spirit. And in the power of the Spirit, he returns to Galilee. I want to take a second to look at the region of Galilee. Um, I'm a visual person. I know we hear Galilee, but we may not be sure of what does that look like. Is Galilee just a city or is it a whole region? So I got a map. And on the map, you'll see a bluish, grayish part called Galilee. And in there are three key places that um, are pertinent to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The first one is where we are actually at this morning. We are in Nazareth. We're in Glenmont, but the story is in Nazareth. And there's also mention of Capernaum, which is all the way up top there. So you can see there's some separation between where, where Jesus grew up and where he actually spends a lot of his ministry. Capernaum, it's really important. That's kind of his ministry HQ. It's where he sets up shop and it's his hub and that's where he does ministry out of. All of it is in the region of Galilee. And I'll just make note of uh, Cana over there. That's where Jesus performed the miracle of turning the water into wine. Just to give context for, he was, he was traveling, he was all over the place throughout this region of Galilee. So if you didn't know, 
Now you know. Back to the text. While he's in that region, a lot of different things happen. Uh, Even before where we get today, he calls his disciples in Galilee. He performs many miracles. He teaches throughout the region. Uh, It's during this time we see him uh, heal a man with an unclean spirit. We see him cleanse lepers, heal paralytics, the guy who is lowered through the roof. Where Jesus brings Jairus' daughter back to life. And as he spends his time doing all these things, it says in our passage there is a report about him that went throughout the surrounding country. In modern day terms, Jesus went viral. People's Instagram stories full of videos and clips of Jesus, memes about Jesus filling people's feeds. The good kind of memes. He was becoming a celebrity in Galilee. And he made his way around and he taught in their synagogues. And the response from those that heard him was glory. He was glorified by all. He was, they praised him for what he was teaching. They didn't fully understand what he had been teaching, but at, for what it was, they were buying what he was selling. They, they liked Jesus. People wanted to hear from him. And as Jesus travels the Galilean region, he makes his way to his old stomping ground, Nazareth, the place where he was brought up. And it's here that his preaching ministry continues. Now, before we get into what happens inside the synagogue, I do want to mention just how this piece of the narrative is placed, because uh, it can get a little confusing, especially if you spend time in Matthew and Mark. Uh, Luke has a very specific purpose in his writing. We know he wants to show Jesus' mission and purpose to bring the gospel not only to Israel, not only to the Jewish people, but to ex- extend out to the Gentiles as well. This sermon in his hometown establishes that exact thing. But if you look in Matthew and Mark, we actually see a ton of miracles and interactions with people throughout Galilee before we get to this time in Nazareth, before he teaches in the synagogue. Now, some say there was two times that he went to the synagogue in Nazareth, um, one at the beginning, ours, and then the other ones later on. Uh, But we see at the end of this passage, they're looking to send Jesus on a permanent vacation. Like, I don't think they're having Jesus come back to like, all right, try again. Maybe we won't kill you this time, or try to. Uh, They're they're trying to, to kill him at the end of this. Why would they have him back again to teach? Jesus also mentions, as we'll see in our text, he mentions doing healings in Capernaum showing he had already done various miracles before his time in the synagogue. So it makes more sense to me that this narrative of Jesus in the synagogue occurs later in his ministry, as we see in Matthew and Mark, but Luke is placing it here for the purpose of kind of setting the stage for for everything we're going to see happen. To establish Jesus' clear message that the gospel, the good news, extends beyond the small scope of just Israel, but it's for all of the world. It's like watching the movie when, when you, you start at kind of the end or the middle, and then they backtrack and tell the story that leads up to that part. That's kind of what we have here. It's, I don't think it's a chronological error by Luke. It's not a discrepancy. It's not something to be like, oh, it's tainted. 
just a different way of telling the same story with a different emphasis on something that's true. So Jesus comes to Nazareth, his hometown, and he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. Now I want to stay on that phrase and pause briefly. I promise I'm not hanging on every little phrase as we go through the sermon. We'll be here till next week's annual meeting, but I just want to look at as was his custom. Jesus went to worship on the Sabbath because it's what he did. It was his habit. He prioritized gathering for worship with his people. A lot of lone wolf Christians who are all about following Jesus but don't want anything to do with the church or gathering with the church. I'm just going to do my own thing. I just follow Jesus by myself. If we're going to follow Jesus, right, we need to follow the example he sets. And his custom was to go to corporate worship, to gather with the people at the synagogue. Synagogue. It wasn't the church as we know it at the time, but that was who his people were. He was Jewish. He gathered on the Sabbath. He prioritized the public reading and the teaching of the scriptures, the time of prayer together, the worship and the singing of psalms. It was his custom. And I think sometimes we hear custom, habit, routine, and we're like, oh no, legalism. Get out of here with that. But habits and disciplines are a good thing. They are a biblical thing. We have things we do all the time that are habits as customs, whether we call them that or not. Is gathering together as the church regularly one of those things? Are we willing to say no to things because coming and gathering together with the saints is our custom? Are we willing to do that? Sorry, my child can't be at that game. We have church. Sorry, I won't be able to make the oddly planned Sunday morning birthday party. We have church. I can't do a Sunday morning tea time. My family and I go to church. Whatever the case may be, God commands his people to gather together. Does he want us to gather just out of custom? Like, just go because you have to. Certainly not. He, he wants us to gather because he knows we need it. He knows it's good. We need the encouragement of being with other believers. Knowing we're not in this battle of life alone. We need to sit under the authority of the teaching of the word of God because that will help us grow in our faith. We need to pause from the sheer busyness of our lives to focus our attention on the one who gave his life for us. That's why we gather. We need regular connection to the body of Christ. Puritan uh, pastor David Clarkson says, The Lord engages himself to let forth, as it were, a stream of his comfortable, quickening presence to every particular person that fears him. But when many of these particulars join together to worship God, then these several streams are united and meet in one, so that the presence of God, which enjoyed in private, is but a stream, and public becomes a river, a river that makes glad the city of God. We want to follow Jesus' customs on how we loved and cared for people. And we also want to follow Jesus' custom and how he loved gathering with the people. That said, we do have a lot to cover. I'll keep moving. We'll go inside the synagogue and see what happened there. It says, Jesus stood up to read. 
The synagogue gatherings had an order of service, just like we have an order of service. Churches have liturgies. Uh, they would sing psalms. They would pray the Shema. They would recite uh, Jewish prayer known as the 18 benedictions. They would read from the Torah, the five, first five books of the Bible, the law. They would have reading from the prophets. There was a sermon, a time when people taught. There was an order of it, and, and Jesus takes part in that. And given Jesus' reputation, he was most likely... Uh, whoever was in charge of the synagogue most likely came to Jesus and asked him, would you please read from the prophets this morning? Would you please teach us since you are around? That wouldn't have been uncommon. So Jesus is handed the scroll of Isaiah to read. A text quite familiar to us as we just walked through that book together. And Jesus takes the scroll without chapters and verses, mind you, finds the precise part to read in chapter 61 as we have it. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is, is reading from what we know as Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2a, with a little addition of Isaiah 58. It's his word. He can mix and match. He's allowed, the only one. Um, these passages all point to the coming Messiah. And Jesus concludes the reading of the scroll. And I just, like, Luke walks us through more detail probably than we needed. And he was done. And he rolled it up. And he turned to his left. He took a step. He hands it. Like, it's play-by-play. -play. He gave it to the attendant. He sits down. That was the posture of the rabbi. He sat down to teach. I don't know why we ditched that for standing for an hour. <laughs> Meet on Sundays, stand up. But he sat down, and it says their eyes are just fixed on him. They can't look away. Reminded of Seinfeld, believe it or not. There's this portrait of Kramer that goes up on the wall, and these two people are looking at it. And the one guy says, he's a loathsome, offensive brute, yet I can't look away. That same portrait hangs in my office. Jesus is not a loathsome, loathsome offensive brute. Um, that's Kramer, but people can't look away. They're fixated on it. People's eyes were glued on him. And Jesus says simply, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Hundreds of years waiting for this Messiah, Jesus makes this claim. He's the one who fulfills this prophecy. He is the one who is anointed by the Father, empowered by the Spirit, who will bring the hope of salvation to those who are seemingly hopeless. The poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. On a societal level, all those different categories of people would have been marginalized, outcasts. But Jesus doesn't fulfill this prophecy merely to deal with the societal issues, um, though we do see him proclaim the gospel to the literal poor, to heal the literal blind, 
But all of these things find their greater and deeper meaning spiritually in the work of the gospel. Deeper than what we see just in the culture. And this first thing we see is to proclaim good news to the poor. The richest of people can be poor spiritually. We know that. We see that. Jesus makes that reality clear when he says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He came to proclaim good news to those who are spiritually bankrupt with nothing. He, he proclaims a greater treasure. He is a greater treasure than anything that can be found in this world. He is that treasure hidden in the field that is so valuable it's worth selling everything else just to possess it. He's come for the poor. Good news for the poor. And in the most literal sense, it's usually the poor who have nothing, who see their need for something greater than those who have everything, and they're just wrapped up in their idols. He came for the poor. He came for the those poor spiritually who have nothing, who need life, who need treasure, and he is that treasure. He, he came to proclaim liberation from captivity. In Isaiah's day, surely they're thinking of that captivity they were in, this exile. But Jesus wasn't coming to tear open jail cells, to set a prison break. He was proclaiming, I know that thought's probably scary to you, prison break, like, no. None of that. For, for, never mind. He was proclaiming a liberation from the chains and the bondage of sin that holds all of mankind captive apart from Christ. He's there to proclaim liberty to the captives. Jesus came to recover sight to the spiritually blind, though, as we mentioned, he gives sight to the literal blind. Those who have been living in this domain of darkness, he gives them sight. He reveals the heinousness of sin. He shows the beauty and the glory of the Savior. Can we, can we not think of the words of amazing grace? I once was blind, but now I see. Jesus came to remove the blinders that make us all think that, that what is worthwhile is just what's before us in this world but there's something greater. He is greater than anything we could ever have. When the veil is lifted, we see Jesus himself and the desires of the flesh. They, we see that they lead to death, but Christ brings life, recovering sight to the blind. Jesus comes to liberate those who are oppressed, we see Jesus in the Gospels reach out to, to bring hope to the literal oppressed, the marginalized people. But he liberates us from the oppression of sin, the weight of sin and its consequences. They feel absolutely unbearable. But in Christ, no more are we under the thumb of sin's curse, but we're liberated and free to live in a newness of life under the headship and rule of a perfect and righteous king a perfect Savior who works all things for good for those who love Him. Jesus came as the one who would proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, as we might know it, the year of Jubilee, this time of canceled debts. 
all that was owed, forgiven. And in Jesus, that debt we owe, that sin debt, that wage of sin that is death, is canceled because Jesus paid it in full on the cross. And the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed, those needing to be liberated from debt, that's not just those people over there, like, I hope they find Jesus. That's all of us, apart from Christ. If we don't trust Jesus, it doesn't matter what we have, it doesn't matter what we've done, we are still poor. We are destitute. If we don't know Jesus, we're still a prisoner to sin. If we don't know Jesus, we think we see everything, but we're really blind. If we don't know Jesus, we are being oppressed by sin. If we don't know Jesus, we owe a, pet, a debt that we will never, ever be able to pay. But Jesus is the anointed one. The Messiah who came to free everyone who would believe in him. Put your trust in him. Surrender to him. The mere physical fulfillment of these different categories would not be near as great as what Jesus actually does. But the physical is what the people were waiting for in that day. They didn't have the knowledge we have today. We didn't have these, these scriptures laid out. They didn't fully know or understand what Jesus was going to do, that he would actually change people from the inside out. And as Jesus reads this prophecy, he says it's fulfilled in their hearing. And when he says this, it says that everyone spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. They couldn't believe what they're hearing. I mean, surely no one sat there and taught and said, this is fulfilled today in what you are hearing in me. But Jesus did. They marveled. They spoke well. But then things take a turn. We don't know how long they were sitting there. Surely Jesus said more words than just, it is fulfilled in your hearing. Luke is bringing out the most important statement. But we don't know how long they were just sitting there in amazement before at some point it just clicked in their head who this guy was again who was talking to them. It says, it shows us here that their marveling kind of changed the questioning. Now all that Luke says is that they say, is not this Joseph's son? Am I on the right slide? I don't even know. I don't know where I'm at. No, not that one! Not that one! Back! Mike! No! I, I can't preach with that on. Click anything. Oh no. Uh, I, I mean, there's no way I'm preaching while this is playing. This clip is way longer when it plays out of place and with no sound. The screen stayed on this time, so there's that. Little victories. Oh, goodness. Is this not Joseph's son? That wasn't. That was Thor, son of Odin. 
But they say this phrase. Now, Mark 6 actually tells us a longer statement of what they said. Because all we have here is they marveled, they said some good things, they go, is this not Joseph's son? But Mark 6 says, they said, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. He can't possibly be God's anointed. He can't be the fulfillment of this prophecy. He's a carpenter. His family's right here. He's full of it. Mark actually tells us that Jesus marvels. He marvels at their unbelief. Some commentators believe that in our passage, when, when they say, is this not Joseph's son, that they're doing it more of like surprise and like they're proud? Like, ah, oh, Joseph's boy. This is great. He's really good at teaching. He's come a long way since the woodworking. But I don't see that. If this is the same rejection we see in the other synoptic Gospels, the reaction was one of disbelief. Questioning. Who are you to say this? You are Joseph's son. The reaction was no surprise to Jesus. He doesn't sit there and try to convince them. He says... Doubtless, you will quote me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What have we heard you did at Capernaum? Do you do here in your hometown as well? And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Those who are closest and most familiar with Jesus are the same ones who don't accept him. This hometown rejection is a picture of the greater rejection Jesus would receive as he's sentenced to death by his own people in Jerusalem. And this proverb that Jesus says here, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Does that sound slightly familiar, maybe with different words? We see it again later in this book, Luke 23, 35. Jesus hung on the cross says, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the God, the, his chosen one. Rejection didn't come as a shock to Jesus. He knew it would happen. He knew in their stubbornness they would rather be blind and poor and accept the son of a carpenter, rather be blind and poor than accept the son of a carpenter as their Messiah. In their minds, the Messiah wouldn't be someone they watched grow up. He wouldn't have brothers and sisters that still lived in town. He wouldn't have a regular profession. The Messiah was going to roll up like Thor and Avengers. There goes the illustration. <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, you saw it earlier. <laughs> Jesus did not roll up that way. <laughs> he did not live up to the expectation of the God that they created in their own minds. And how often today do we reject God because He isn't what they think He should be? Maybe that's you. It's because as sinful creatures, that we, we want to put the cart before the horse and say, instead of saying, God created me, and everything around me, he's, he's probably right, I'm probably wrong, and I should just look to him. 
we say, you should be like the God I want you to be. You should act how I think you should act. But that's not how it works. And part of having our sight restored and the blinders lifted is seeing ourselves for who we are and seeing God for who He is. He alone is perfect, good, holy, powerful, all-knowing. I could go on. We're the ones who are sinful, imperfect, with extremely limited, very limited, finite minds. Just because God doesn't meet our fictional expectations doesn't mean He isn't God. We need to submit ourselves to His person, His character, the way He does things. And before we see Jesus as a warrior king, we see Jesus as a miracle-working carpenter. But his hometown community couldn't see past that. Is this not the son of Joseph? And Jesus speaks to them about two figures they surely knew. Elijah and Elisha. I don't know if I clicked forward. Am I after that video? Oh, thank goodness. Bad move. Okay. Verse 25. Jesus says, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath and the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. This story that Jesus references is from 1 Kings 17. There was a famine in the land due to King Ahab erecting altars to the false god Baal. And, and during this famine, God cared, he protected, he provided for Elijah. He nourished him via a brook that eventually dries up. Uh, ravens actually bring him food. It's nice, convenient. But eventually God sends Elijah to a widow, as we see here in Zarephath, in Sidon, which is where the wicked Jezebel was from. Surely the one who influenced Ahab to his Baal worship. And God uses a Gentile widow to provide for his prophet Elijah. And during the famine, God kept Elijah and this Gentile woman's household alive through his provision. He did not send Elijah to an Israelite widow. He sends his Jewish prophet to a Gentile widow, and God provides for them together as Gentile and Jew. The second story Jesus references, and we'll expound on them both after we go over them, in verse 27, and then there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. That's Elijah's successor. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Naaman was the commander of the Syrian army, who also had leprosy. And he came to Elisha and requ was requested... Re My watch just told me about Syria, so that's cool. <laughs> Elisha tells him... <laughs> He goes to Elisha, wants to be cleansed. Elisha tells him to dip himself in the Jordan River seven times and he will be cleansed. There's some reluctance at first, but eventually when he does it, he, a Gentile, is washed clean. While the Israelites, God's people, people who had the same affliction and ailment, were not. So by Jesus sharing these stories, he is communicating to the Jewish people sitting in that synagogue, that 
his salvific profession was not just for Israel, but was extending out to the Gentiles. From those, just referencing those stories, they knew what he was saying. And that was deeply offensive. The Messiah was supposed to be exclusively theirs. The Gentiles, the pagans, those were the people over there. They were lesser people. They don't get the Messiah. But this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. It extends beyond ethnic Israel. God's salvation is good news for all poor. Liberty comes for all who are captive to sin. He brings sight to all the blind. He brings liberty to all the oppressed. All peoples everywhere who put their hope and trust in Jesus receive salvation. Not just those in the proper bloodline. And that's why we call this series Mission to the World. Jesus came as the Messiah for all the earth, for all peoples. And that hit home for Luke, especially because he's a Gentile. He was a companion with Paul as Paul brought the gospel to the Gentile people. The gospel is good news for anyone who hears it and responds to it in belief and repentance and faith in Christ, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of past sins, regardless of social status. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came to save lost sinners. And he gave his life willingly on the cross for all who would believe in him everywhere. He's the risen and reigning king, and his kingdom extends to all people from all nations. That's great news for us as a church made up of Gentiles. When we hear God wants to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, that brings us joy, that makes us happy. Like, yes, that's the God we're talking about. But back then, it did not make the people in that synagogue happy. They revolt against the teacher that they marveled at moments earlier. Verse 28 says, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. There's many of us who have seen drama in a church. But I don't think any of us has seen, like, let's throw the pastor off a cliff drama in a church. Like, things escalate rather quickly here. They were full of wrath. Their temple, tempers just boiled over into blind rage. They heard Jesus' words and all they could see was red. Why is he telling those stories of Elijah and Elisha? Kill him! Seems like an overreaction. Is Joseph's son telling us he's the Messiah? He's here for Gentiles? We're not standing for this. We're going to kill him. And a mob of people, people who gathered for worship, unite to murder someone. If something shows us we need a Savior, it's this passage. The mob rushes Jesus out of the synagogue to the brow of the hill to the edge of town to throw him off a cliff. But yet, it wasn't Jesus' time to die. 
Their plan is unsuccessful. And it says, but passing through their mist, he went away. And it's like this, this building up of tension. They're rushing him out. It seems like all this action is happening, and Jesus just... Gone. I don't know how he did it. All eyes were on Jesus, the mean teacher who said God loves Gentiles, yet somehow he manages to pass through their midst and leave. We don't know what it looked like. We don't know how he did it, but I would say it's nothing short of miraculous. It says all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. It wasn't like a vocal minority who was just sitting there and they were like, mm, a few of us really have a problem with what you said. We're going to try and kill you. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm faster. I'm going to get out of here. Like, no one was sitting there going, I think this guy's okay. No, they were all filled with wrath. And they rushed Jesus outside. And he manages to walk away unscathed. That's pretty incredible. It's also a pretty sad story if you think about it from a, just a human perspective. The, the people you grew up around, the people who watched you grow up, they betray you. Nazareth, it's not a big town. It's probably like a few hundred people. Maybe. 400, I don't know, something like that. People knew Jesus. He knew them. Yet they rejected him. And then he leaves. In the other Gospels, it says he doesn't do the miracles there that he does other places. He heals some sick people and then parts and goes his, his own way. They reject him, and he rejects them to a certain extent. Not that they are beyond the scope of salvation if they were to believe in him, but when it comes to the Gospel, neutrality isn't really an option. You either accept Christ or you reject him. They rejected him. Rather accepted by grace, Christ by grace through faith in him or were rejected due to our sinful rebelliousness. If Jesus is not the supreme object of our worship, our Lord and Savior, if he is merely to us just a good person, a moral teacher, that's rejection. We're rejecting who he truly is. There's no middle ground. And their response to Jesus merely proclaiming the good news of who he came to save led to their rejection. Where are you this morning? Have you submitted your life to Jesus? Do you, do you believe he is the anointed Messiah who came to bring you from spiritual poverty to having the greatest treasure in himself? From captivity to freedom. Or are you a part of the mob saying, I don't like what you have to say. You're dead to me. I'm not going to follow. Where are you at this morning? I mentioned this earlier, but I'll conclude with it. This story is but a foreshadowing of what is to come for Jesus. At this point, it's a small town in Galilee that's rejecting him. But it points to when he would be rejected by everyone. And his friends would desert him. And let's look on as he is taken away. Here we see he's betrayed by the people he was closest to growing up. Later he would be betrayed by one of his closest friends and disciples. Here he escapes the mob when they come to seize him. But later a mob will come in the garden and he will be arrested. And he will be put on trial and sentenced to death via crucifixion. 
The people in the Nazarene synagogue were full of wrath, but Jesus doesn't subject himself to their wrath. But on the cross, Jesus experiences the wrath of the Father poured out for the penalty of the sin that we owed. He bears the punishment that we deserve. But in all of that, his life was never taken from him. He laid it down willingly when the time was right, according to the plans of his Father. John 10, 17-18. Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay, my, lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The Father sends the Son. The Son willingly lays down His life because of the love they have for their creation. The triune God is at work in salvation. The love that God has for you and for me, that we would be free from the bondage of sin, liberated from the oppression that we're under. That God didn't design us to live that way. He designed us to live for His kingdom, for His glory. And in Christ, we're freed to live how God designed us to live. An abundance of life, no longer spiritually poor, but abundant in Him. Have you repented of your sins and trusted Christ as your Savior? The band can make their way up here. We're going to move into worshiping through song, but uh, the first song we're going to sing when we conclude here, is a song called Man of Sorrows. And may the words of this song fill us with an awe of what Jesus did to purchase our redemption. For the glory of His Father, for the salvation of His people. Listen to the words of a couple of the verses from the song. Because the words we sing are important. can never emphasize this enough. It's not just words on a screen. These are rooted in the Scriptures. These are Song, these are words sung to our Creator about our Savior. It says, Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame, scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty and vile and helpless me. Spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And it's my hope this morning that we can sing the words, Hallelujah. What a Savior. And find rejoicing in the freedom that we have in Christ. Knowing with full certainty Jesus Christ is the anointed Savior who came to bring good news to the poor, to liberty to the captive, sight to the blind, to liberate those who are oppressed, to cancel the debts. Pray that you would know that this morning. Let's pray together. Father, it is easy to look at a text like this, as I probably did many times this week, and think how foolish could those people in that synagogue be but we can be just as foolish as we deny the truth of what you call us to do. We live in ways that are antithetical to how you call us to live. We deny you and have our own idols and worship 
the own gods of our minds. But we ask that as we have looked at your word, help us to see the beauty of Christ. Help us to see the great treasure we have in him. That we would repent of all that sin that gets in the way, that stops us from seeing and savoring our Savior. And that we would just fall before you and humbly cry out that we do need Christ. We do need a Savior. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus came in and he endured the rejection that, that we rightfully deserve so that we could have life, that we could have hope this morning. And pray that those many sitting here who don't know that hope would know that hope this morning. We ask that your spirit, who is at work in Jesus' life, would be at work in our hearts, softening us, conforming us to look more like your perfect son, Jesus Christ. And that we would, as we just said, be able to sing with no inhibition, hallelujah, what a Savior we have. And it's in the name of that Savior, the name of Jesus, the name that every knee will one day bow and confess as Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.